Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Siliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Greetings. <laughs> Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurangai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Don't know if I have much to report. I feel like the one thing is that I've become addicted to that little Nas X song, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. I feel like I'm a, a few months too late. I do acknowledge that. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> uh, I'm finally catching up with what the, the kids are listening to. And it's pretty funky. It's good. Good song. It's a good song. Anyways, that's all I've been listening to on repeat. What about you? Um, yeah, I'm fine. A bit tired. I've just moved into the night shift at pedestrian and I'm adjusting. I am actually typically a morning person. So the adjustment to working late nights is a rough one for me. I'm the kind of person who's in bed by like 10. So, wow. Yeah, How do you do it? Just, I have a great body clock. What can I That's say? Crazy. I do value my sleep. I do enjoy the eight to 10 hours that I try and spend unconscious every night. I value my sleep as well. I always get my eight hours. It's just that I'll go to bed at four and wake up at okay, noon. Do you value your sleep? Like, you, you value your sleep, but do you like enjoy it like with mirth? Because I enjoy sleeping. Mm. Like I find so much joy out of being in bed, rugged up, sleepy, cozy. Like I, when I come home, like pre this job, I would, it'd be like 9 p.m. and I'd be so excited to just put my pajamas on and get in my bed. Like I love being in bed. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. I feel like I do treat sleep. I enjoy sleep, but it is a burden. It's a necessity for yeah, you. Yeah, it's like I wish I was doing other things. Sleeping is when my day ends, which is why I often push it back so far because I don't want my day to end yet because there's all these things I was planning to do. Whereas for me, sleep is like resistance. Sleep is anti-capitalist. Wow. It is. <laughs> <laughs> there is a legitimate movement. You guys should look up the NAP ministry on Instagram. But there is a legitimate anti-capitalist movement focused on rest. And I love that. I mean, I already loved sleep, but this has given me a newfound appreciation for going to bed. Because why should I be productive at home? I should be able to just be in my bed, like reading, sleeping, watching TikToks, whatever. But I just like love my sleep slash rest time. I think we need to cancel today's episode. <laughs> and now, now, now we're talking about sleep. I love maybe this. we should do it. sleep as revolutionary activity. <laughs> maybe maybe that can be an episode we do pretty soon. Sleep that- is praxis. Sleep is praxis. I oh will my. die on this hill. Sleep is praxis. You've sold me. Let, let's stop recording now and just go have a nap. <laughs> well, this isn't work. Well, we'll work, play the is outro. It? We could have another debate even another episode on what constitutes as work Mm-mm. what constitutes as labor but anyway i feel like i'm <laughs> starting all these yeah, new you episodes have to stop me i feel probably like should do this one right that's true okay let's get into our follow-up because what this to me is happening right now <laughs> um last week we did an episode on nostalgia which you guys really seemed to love and vibe with. And that was really great. I had a lot of people like message me and be like, oh my God, what a coincidence. I actually like love nostalgia and have been like noticing the trend and thinking about it. It's like been on my mind. It's like so cool that you guys talked about it. And I'm like, yeah, it's been on everybody's minds. That's why we talked about it. Because like, it's actually, I mean, it is a very, very specific now thing. Like nostalgia is like a thing right now. So it's 
it makes sense that it was timely. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed the episode. I feel like you could even say that. I'm feeling a bit nostalgic for last week's <laughs> episode. I knew it. He makes Mitch has a face that he makes when he's about to say something that he knows is going to elicit a reaction. And he was making the face. I knew there was a pun coming. I actually knew it. I can't help myself. He's got this like evil little like face that he makes. A shit-eating grin. A- yeah, exactly. A shit-eating grin is exactly <laughs> how I would. I think I have described it like that in the past. Yeah, back back in the good old days of Here's a Thing Though podcast, where we discussed <laughs> interesting things like nostalgia. <laughs> what? You don't think today's going to be interesting? I picked today's topic. Well, I feel like, you know, I just sometimes feel like it's not quite good enough. Oh, I see what okay. you're doing there. <laughs> too early. I haven't okay, introduced okay. the we'll topic get to yet. That soon. Sorry, guys. We're just too chatty today. Okay, so just back into the follow up. Uh, something interesting that I wanted to bring up that one of you lovely listeners sent me uh, was that somebody pointed out to me because they're doing an assignment on it. Uh, is that Hungry Jacks actually reverted back to their pre 90s logo, which I find very interesting, very perfect example. <laughs> of like corporations and companies cashing in on our nostalgia and our need to go back. Like the fact that companies are reverting and this is like not just Hungry Jacks, like other companies are doing it too, but Hungry Jacks is a really good, easy to look at example. Mm, I feel like KFC changed their logo in the mm. past couple of years to something more minimalistic. I feel like I feel like you could even like track the trend of the aesthetic styles of logos. I feel like there's a period maybe in the, the 1900s where they were minimalistic. And then in the early 2000s, things started becoming quite complicated. Like I'm thinking of, you know, the original iPhone? Remember mm. how all the icons on those were so busy mm. and ultra detailed? And then now that Apple has gone in the direction in the past 10 years or so to like the minimalist- Sleek. Sleek design. I feel like if that's like, is there an act of nostalgia in that? I don't What's know. really interesting is I actually think minimalism and sleekness is futuristic. Mm. And I have a feeling we're going to go back to cluttered, like gaudy aesthetic. I've already seen a revival of that style anyway, even just on like house decorating and TikTok. Like, because now there's all this shaming of that live, laugh, love came out aesthetic, which is often actually not a few. It's, it's only a few steps behind like modern minimalist because there's an overlap of like rich white women in the middle. But um, I think bringing back cluttered, really individualistic, full of personality style with like millions of accessories and little things. I reckon it's, I'm calling it now. It's going to make a comeback. Interesting. And I partially, like a huge part of it is nostalgia, but I think also, <laughs> God, another tangent. I'll finish up real quick. Okay. I think also like with minimalism, I mean, I have thoughts on it being classist and whatnot, and I'm pretty anti-minimalism. Minimalism? Minimalism? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also like I think we're kind of having um, a real revival in Gen Z of just like authenticity in like an actual kind of more genuine sense like not authentic to a trend but just authentic to what you like I'm seeing it. that's why like I mean we talked about this briefly in the nostalgia episode but that's why like fashion is so all over the place right now there isn't really a defining trend aside from maybe retro of like fashion right now people just kind of wear whatever the fuck they want and like Wearing it with pride is what makes it cool. Like being able to carry yourself and like own whatever you're wearing, no matter how funky it is, immediately makes it cool and stylish. And I think that Gen Z being the lovely disillusioned anti-capitalist a lot of them are, are really reclaiming just fucking liking shit and not really caring about like minimalism and capitalism and like, you know, the fact that people set trends. They just are kind of starting to just do their own shit. And it's like almost like a counterculture. I'm seeing it happening and I love it. I think it's great. Hmm. 
I sort of agree and I don't agree. And I feel like I have a lot to say, but we just got to move on. We got to get out of <laughs> you this know what? hole. Maybe, maybe we can do like a little side thing later for this. Maybe. Maybe we can do some bonus content. I don't know. So that was my opinion. Mitch, you didn't get to air yours. We're moving on. <laughs> We're moving on. Uh, I'm going to introduce today's topic. Today, we are going to talk about imposter syndrome, which I think quite a few people have requested in the past for us to cover. And I feel like I talk about imposter syndrome offhandedly quite frequently throughout the series because like, I mean, story of my life. But I think imposter syndrome is really interesting because it's far deeper as a political tool than we think it is. You know, we kind of see imposter syndrome as the thing that a lot of people, and particularly women, and particularly women of colour, experience. You know, we're just, like, insecure. It's just, like, what happens in a world that is, like, anti-feminist or whatever. But I just think there's so much more to it. There's so much... People, like, people get something out of imposter syndrome. It exists because it actually provides a certain group of people with with benefits. Um, It's, like, a very targeted thing. Imposter syndrome isn't an accidental thing that exists in the world that we just suffer from. Like, Like, everything in this world, it has roots... I think, in capitalism and white supremacy. And that's what we're going to get into today. Cool. So before we, you know, get into a deep conversation on like the background of imposter syndrome, let's take a moment to actually discuss what it is in case some people aren't familiar. So imposter syndrome. Is it when you play too much Among Us? No. You know, I've never played that game. Me neither. I was going to say that's where the Among Us jokes ends. Because I don't know anything I haven't else. played it. I know. I definitely like everybody I know. And my siblings who are very Gen Z, they're teenagers, love Among Us. And they're always playing at my cousins and stuff. And I've just never played it. And now I feel like it's too late yeah. and I'm too old. And people like, I've kind of gone this far without people noticing that I haven't played it. But it, it's too late to play now because then I would have to ask somebody to explain it. And then it would show that I'm, you know, an imposter. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... No, that's not what imposter syndrome refers okay. to. But I completely sympathize with you Can on that someone one. someone just explain it to me? Okay, anyways. <laughs> imposter syndrome refers to this intense anxiety of like not really being as good as people think you are. So it's this feeling of being like a fraud that you have conned everyone around you to think that you're competent or accomplished, but really you're actually not. So you're convinced that all of your accomplishments, they're either circumstantial, maybe they're just dumb luck, coincidental. Somehow you managed to get this far in life by fucking around and you're worried that one day people are going to figure that out because people seem to think you got here based on merit and skill and you know deep down that it was an accident. That's imposter syndrome. The idea that you didn't earn your accomplishments and it's something that a lot of people relate to. I mean, it's become a pretty common term I think lately it's a very overused buzzword in my opinion the idea of imposter syndrome like anytime anybody feels even a mild anxiety when it comes to like a presentation at work or proposing a new idea they're like oh my god my imposter syndrome but yeah so that's kind of I think the gist of what actually imposter syndrome is and how it feels and I believe that a lot of you listening probably experience these feelings very frequently I know I do all the time every day but Imposter syndrome to me, I think, is is more than that. I think there's a few intersections with race and gender that are really important to talk about. The most obvious one, I think, is that of women. Imposter syndrome is almost always exclusively applied to women. Like, I hear very few circumstances in which men are considered to have imposter syndrome or even talk about having imposter syndrome. 
oftentimes, and there's like legitimate history to this, oftentimes imposter syndrome is very specific to women feeling, you know, anxiety about where they are at work or feeling like they're not competent enough or not good enough. It is like quite specific to women. There are roots in this of, I guess, female hysteria even, like the idea of the anxious woman. Yeah, it's kind of rooted in all that. It's pretty common. It is interesting to me that I don't often see imposter syndrome applied to men, but where we do often see it applied is in the workplace. Imposter syndrome is almost always relating to like your professional life, like how good you are at your job or how accomplished you are in your career or like how many cool things you've done in this field. I read a really interesting article recently about the pathologizing of imposter syndrome when it comes to women. And I found it quite enlightening for a number of reasons. Actually, I think it probably is the basis of a lot of the conversations that we're going to have today. I'll link it in the source list. Something that it brought up was the pathologizing of anxieties that are often like maybe quite normal uh, and specifically at the intersection of like race and gender. And that's something that I personally feel quite strongly about with imposter syndrome because there is an intersection of women, like white women and then women of color in the experience of imposter syndrome because while it's generally applied to all women, there is a different way in which we not only experience imposter syndrome, but the way the world around us reacts to us experiencing imposter syndrome. I, and this is kind of in my personal experience, I definitely see a lot of people around me talk about having imposter syndrome. It's pretty common. It's a conversation that a lot of women have, especially like a conversation I have with female coworkers a lot of the time. But I think sometimes the conversations that I hear from white female coworkers, especially ones that are maybe a little bit more senior than me or like have been at the company longer than me or have more experience in general in this career as me, where, I don't know, there tends to be like people feeling a mild anxiety that is completely natural to the situation that they're in and then pathologizing it as imposter syndrome. And I see this a lot with white women who may not know the difference. And I don't necessarily think it's their fault, but I think there's definitely some politics around like the actual genuine feeling of like crippling anxiety that comes with feeling like you don't belong in this workspace. And then just feeling a bit anxious because you have something big coming up. And I think because of the pathologizing that we have of imposter syndrome and just of like any anxiety a woman and especially like a non-white woman experiences in the workplace, we're just like, okay, this is imposter syndrome. You are clearly suffering from this version of hysteria. You poor thing, you need to work on your confidence. And I don't think that's good for a lot of reasons, but I think the main one, which I just brought up then, was like the difference between like just normal anxiety or just normal nervousness and imposter syndrome. Because while white women obviously do and can experience imposter syndrome, I think it's kind of become a buzzword that a lot of white women will just use to pathologize their own feelings. And I think it can be problematic because it can like actually disregard quite a bit of legitimate anxiety. But that was a side note. I want to get into this article. I'm going to read you guys an excerpt. The article is called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. It's by Harvard Business Review. It's written by two women of color. Um, and it's really, really, really fascinating. So it starts off talking about Talisa Lavari, and I'm going to read you an excerpt. Talisa Lavari was exhausted. She had led the charge at her corporate event management company to plan a high-profile security-intensive event, working around the clock and through weekends for months. Barack Obama was the keynote speaker. Lavari knew how to handle the complicated logistics required, but not the office politics. A golden opportunity to prove her expertise had turned into a living nightmare. Lavery's colleagues interrogated and censured her, calling her professionalism into question. Their bullying, both subtle and overt, haunted each decision she made. 
Lavery wondered whether her race had something to do with the way she was treated. She was, after all, the only black woman on her team. She began doubting whether she was qualified for the job, despite constant praise from the client. What had started as healthy nervousness, will I fit in, will my colleagues like me, can I do good work, became a workplace-induced trauma that had her contemplating suicide. Today, when Lavery, who has since written a book about her experience called Confessions from Your Token Black Colleague, reflects on the imposter syndrome she fell prey to during that time, she knows it wasn't a lack of self-confidence that held her back. It was repeatedly facing systemic racism and bias. That's how the article opens up and instantly I was like, oh my God, these are all the thoughts I've had hovering on the edge of my consciousness for like years that are finally actually kind of being spoken back to me in a real legitimate and validating way. Because I think about this all the time. It presents a really good argument. Like, is it imposter syndrome? Like, is it an irrational form of anxiety that's just inherent to being a woman in the workplace? Or is it a very legitimate trauma and anxiety that is a result of targeted, systemic, racist attacks to erode your self-esteem and power as not just a woman, but a woman of color. And I think, you know, disclaimer now, I will predominantly be talking about imposter syndrome from the lens of a woman of color and the various intersections that come with that. Because as a woman of color, a lot of the gaslighting that I experience in the workplace, the kind of stuff that leads to having imposter syndrome to me is like from white women. Like I often feel like A lot of my imposter syndrome is actually a result of things white women have done and said to me. Um, And that's going to become really relevant as I keep talking about this. But I do want to put that disclaimer out there because I'm not saying white women don't experience imposter syndrome, but I also don't think we can just pretend that they don't actively like cause it in women of color. The article goes on to say, and this is a little, another little sentence I want to read to you. The same systems that reward confidence in male leaders, even if they're incompetent, punish white women for lacking confidence and punish women of colour for showing too much of it and all women for demonstrating it in a way that's deemed unacceptable. I just, oh yes, I find that so interesting and so true for a lot of reasons. Currently, we live in this new wave kind of form of girl boss feminism where white women are encouraged to be confident, to be leaders, to to take charge of businesses and the workplace And this particular brand of girl boss feminism is, you know, a child of white feminism. It generally is there to uplift white women and white women only. Women of color who exhibit the same kind of confidence and charge that like this feminism encourages in white women and wants to see more of in white women are often punished, we're gaslit, we're excluded from these workspaces under the accusations of like aggression, being hard to work with, not taking feedback well. They're kind of classic gaslighting that white feminism already employs against women of color who stand up for themselves. Like girl boss feminism is just kind of a very specific form of that that seeks to uplift and embolden white women in like having, I guess, more rights in the workplace and competing with the white man and potentially surpassing the white man. But it is at the detriment of women of color because the problem is like women of color who exhibit that same kind of, you know, that confidence that we, that Girlboss Feminism wants us to see, we're like, we're a threat to the racial hierarchy in the workplace. And I can speak like from experience, I guess, just in any kind of dealings I've had. I've been lucky as a woman of color that I've kind of, never actually worked directly under white men probably obviously there's white men in the companies that I work for but in the past I've almost always liaised with either a white woman or maybe like I've had bosses like a man of color rarely ever under women of color unfortunately but 
the people that have worked for have almost always been either like ethnic men or white women. And that's where a lot of my experiences come from in terms of imposter syndrome and like just workplace politics. And the thing about people like me, women of color like me, is that inherently by being like political and anti-capitalist and anti-racist and anti-classist and everything, like inherently I'm going to be in a position where I have to call out some bullshit. Like it is just inherent as the opinionated person in the room and as somebody who can't fucking stand to see that shit like I'm always landing in hot water because I'm like you can't say that or you can't do that or you can't write that or you can't publish that that's fucking racist like I have a problem with this content and I'm often the person that says things like that because I have to be like I'm also often the only woman of color in the room um, and somebody has to say it and when I have the confidence to do that that's not considered girl boss feminism. I'm not a fucking icon of like, yes, queen, like stick it to the man, stick it to the workplace because it's not white men that I'm often saying that to just by virtue of not really having worked with many of them. Like for me, when I am standing up for my beliefs as a woman of color in the workplace, I'm often standing up to white women who are usually, you know, the people that are superior to me in a company. And the thing about that is all the girl boss feminism goes out the window when it comes to me because by fighting against the things that my bosses are trying to do or my other white coworkers are trying to do, I am, you know, usurping the, the racial hierarchy. At that point, it no longer is girls for girls, hashtag feminism. It's this angry woman of color is being aggressive and she's attacking our white workers and their beliefs. She's difficult you know, this woman is a problem, right? And then that obviously is not going to be good for you as the person who is, you know, being quote unquote divisive amongst one of the many things I've been called. Um, And that is kind of like the failings of girl boss feminism, which we'll do a whole episode on in the future. I'm not going to get too deeply into it. But there's a quote in the article that I feel like really exhibits what I kind of think of when I think of like gaslighting and women of color and the way that like we are oppressed more under a workplace and particularly by white women. Uh, Here's a quote. Research from Keisha M. Thomas finds that too often women of color enter their companies as pets, but are treated as threats once they gain influence in their roles. And that's, I think, something that I really, really vibe with. Like, that's definitely happened to me where somebody's reached out for me to do some work because they've seen, like, the stuff I talk about with diversity. And then they're like, oh, yeah, here's this. I'm also, you know, I'm young, 22 now. I've been doing this stuff since I was, like, 19 or 20. So really young, still in uni or fresh out of uni, clearly, you know, easy to mould. Um And people will come to me wanting me to do some tokenistic like diversity work. And I'll say, yes, because I need the money. And, you know, it'd be like that sometimes. And then like I'm hired or I'm employed or whatever as whatever job I'm doing. And then I start to actually have opinions. And I start to actually like criticize the workplace. And I start to be like, you know what? I don't think this is very safe for people like me. And I don't really think this is very helpful to women of color. And I, you know, X, Y, Z, here are all the problems that I'm seeing in this workplace. This is why you don't currently have a lot of non-white people here. Like, here's the problem. And now I'm a threat. Now I'm a problem. Now I'm aggressive because this is not what I was hired to do. And this is not what's expected of me as a woman of color in the workplace. I'm expected to be lucky that I'm here. I'm expected to be insecure because of the constant gaslighting that I experienced by mostly, in my experience, white women that leads to me having imposter syndrome. And if that's not what you are here to do, if that's not what you're employed to do to contribute to the company, then what were you employed to do? 
Exactly. And that's when we get to my very specific experiences of imposter syndrome, because I obviously will not have the same ones as everybody else. But God, I can tell you right now, it's white women that have made me the most insecure about like my work and, you know, have implied that I am where I am. I've gotten the roles that I've gotten because of token diversity and not because of my actual skills and accomplishments. Like I get that all the time, especially when I get hired or like I start working with somebody and then suddenly I'm like too aggressive or I'm too divisive or I, you know, I, I talk back too much and I'm too difficult. And it's like, if you fucking hide me as like somebody to diversify this space or you hide me to consult about diversity or you hide me because you really want to comment on racism and you need somebody who you trust to do it. Like if you hide me for these very these things that are very specific to me being a woman of color who experiences racism like if I'm being paid right now for my racial the knowledge that comes with my racial trauma and then I give it to you and suddenly I'm not giving you what you wanted what the fuck did you want tokenism right and it's one of those really difficult things at least for me because even now like here right now on this podcast it's very hard for me to say that that's not true it's hard for me to be like yeah I actually was hired for my skills Like, you know, Mitch will tell me when I am being insecure, no, like you're good at your job. They wouldn't have hired you if you weren't good at your job. But then I'm always like, what if they're right? And I'm just competent enough to make a diversity hire worth it. You know, like, am I like, I might be good at my job, but am I actually better at this job than other whiter applicants? Or am I here to just absolve my employer of any anti-racist responsibilities? Because, you know, now that I am here and I'm being this tokenistic Muslim brown girl, you know, it kind of makes whoever I'm working with seem better, seem, you know, less racist or more welcoming. Like, am I just good enough to warrant a diversity hire or am I actually as good as everybody else? This is something that I deal with, like, all the fucking time, like literally every day for years. I mean, Mitch knows because I have this meltdown like constantly. Sure. <laughs> well, in some way, the worst part is, is that I guess people from the left would criticize this token diversity for being tokenistic entirely. But so many people will say that you're lucky for having this. Like you got the job just because you're brown woman, because mm. you're some minority Yes, love that for you, Queen. Group. It's like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, you don't actually have to work as hard to get the position you want. And then if you complain about that, it's like, what are you complaining about? Like, you got this role. You're so lucky to have this uh, this disenfranchised identity because it, it helps you navigate through this world better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the reality is, is that I imagine it has an incredible psychological toll. It's like, what am I even doing here? What am I? Am I really just my race? Am I nothing more than that in this world? Is that all I'm appreciated for? Yeah, and it's just like, because I know that I'm like a competent worker, but like, am I just competent? Am I actually good at this? That is something I struggle with all the time. And it is, yeah, it's like a very push and pull because on the one hand, I'm very aware that tokenism is a thing. It's probably like likely that I am being hired for tokenistic roles. I'm sure that's true in a lot of circumstances and the workplaces that I have experienced and the, and the gaslighting and the bullshit that you experience in your workplaces when you actually try to speak up for yourself are a pretty good testament to why you've been hired because a place that actually wants to create change would take your criticisms and your concerns on board, right? So it's like there's very, there's very real evidence for the things that I'm insecure about. And then it kind of just makes me wonder, like, is it actually imposter syndrome that is making me feel like I'm not good enough, that I, you know, didn't actually accomplish these things on my own merit, but because of like a very specific need right now for people like me, you know, am I actually good at this or have have I just accidentally found this niche and it's just kind of worked out for me? Like how much of it is, is my, is it my hard work and how much of it is based on chance? And it's like, is that imposter syndrome? Is it, am I just experiencing irrational anxiety 
I doubt it. The most probable thing to me is the fact that like people and specifically white women girl boss types around me have very slowly and systemically eroded my confidence by their continued attempts to humble me to the point of like crippling me. I'm, you know, in order to subdue me as a threat to the racial hierarchy in the workplace and maintain their place at the top as authority, as my seniors or as people that have more impact in the workplace than I do. Because if I'm too busy being insecure and humbling myself and second guessing myself and wondering if I should even bother attempting to create these big changes, I won't have the chance to actually reach my potential and exert some power in predominantly white and often white feminist spaces. Like if I'm too busy being fucking insecure, I can't actually come in here and fight for what I'm here for. It's calculated and I think that's I guess one of my main arguments today I think imposter syndrome it's a very calculated effort to keep women and particularly what like women of color very specifically out of the workplace it's to keep us subdued it's to keep us as little pets that are just grateful that we get to be here rather than like women with like radical ideas of change that are going to benefit the world and you know I bet you makes you work harder as well yeah, exactly. But it makes you put more effort into your position because you feel like you have to prove yourself even more than everyone else does. Yeah, and I think that kind of brings us to like the relationship between imposter syndrome and capitalism. Because this early bit is the relationship between like imposter syndrome and like race and white supremacy. But there's also another intersection and that is like labor because Mitch is right. Like when you feel like you have to fucking prove yourself every single day because of the imposter syndrome that you experience, because you're not just proving to the world, you're proving to yourself every day that you deserve to be here. You're proving to yourself that you are competent. So every day you have to be better than everybody else to prove to yourself that you should be here. And what, what comes out of a dedication like that? A lot of extra labor that you don't have to fucking do, right? A lot of often unpaid labor that you don't have to do. There have been times where I've like clocked off and then spent an extra couple of hours compiling all this work for tomorrow so that I can like be a step ahead, even though like I'm not getting paid for that work. But being that step ahead is going to make me feel good about myself. It's going to make me feel less anxious. It's going to make me feel like I deserve to be here. But really the only person actually fucking benefiting is capitalism, the company that I'm working for. Yeah. And that reminds me of something I heard not too long ago about imposter syndrome which is that in some ways, a little bit of imposter syndrome isn't a bad thing. Because if you always feel like in a way that you need to prove yourself a little bit or you're not quite as good as people think you are, it may actually push you to do even better work. And in some ways, that's really good if you're doing work that is fulfilling or you're doing something that you want to do. But the problem is, is that for most people, imposter syndrome isn't just a little thing in the background. It is all encompassing in a way. It is debilitating. It stops you from doing what you want to do. And I would also even pose the question of if it's just a little bit of imposter syndrome, is it imposter syndrome? Mm, That's true. Or is it just normal fucking like nervousness that comes with a job that we've just like called imposter syndrome because buzzwords, you know, because like that is something that I mentioned earlier where like for a lot of people, I doubt like it's even imposter syndrome, but we've just told everybody that insecurity and imposter syndrome are the same thing. And that's not true. Like imposter syndrome is a very specific, pretty debilitating, traumatic kind of self-doubt that impacts everything you do and you often lose, you know, like opportunities. You often lose like steps for the future because you don't take them because you're so insecure and you just you just can't trust your own opinion. It is debilitating. 
I, and I just kind of did want to point that out there because I think a lot of people have pretty skewed ideas of what imposter syndrome is, especially now that it's been taken up. I see a fucking article every single day by some pop culture, quizzy, you know, pop psychology article that's just like, oh, do you have imposter syndrome? Do you feel insecure at work? And I'm like, that's not, that's not what it is. But yeah, I think you're right. I think like it can be perceived by capitalism as a good thing because anything that drives the profits of a company and forces a worker to work more than they should be is going to be good for capitalism and good for a company. And that brings us to something a little bit weird, which is like, why do we care so much? Like, why do I feel like an imposter or why do people feel like an imposter doing jobs that in a way they don't care about? Jobs that they wish they didn't have to work. I mean, after all, we are, and I may mention a lot of you are, anti-capitalists who think that a lot of your work is useless anyway. So why do we get so much anxiety thinking about that we're not good enough to do a job that actually doesn't really matter, apparently? This brings me to something that I've been reading recently, which is David Graeber's really good book, and I will recommend it to all listening, Bullshit Jobs. And in that, he maps out some interesting statistics, which, I mean, this is specific to the UK, but I imagine it applies uh, everywhere from what I see, that around 37% of people and up to 50% of people truly believe that their jobs contribute nothing to society, that their work is unnecessary. And if their office building burned down tomorrow, it would not really have any substantial impact on the society they surround themselves with. So a strange irony has emerged. Many of us believe that our jobs are meaningless or at worst physically or psychologically corrosive. However, we still gain so much of our identity, so much of our sense of self, from our work. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, you ask them what they do. And specifically, you're asking them what they do for a living. So even though we feel like what we're doing may not be important, we still feel like it builds our character in a way. So since so much of our identity, whether we like it or not, is attributed to our work, to our labor, even if the job is apparently bullshit, we feel like we still need to earn our keep, prove that we actually deserve it. And that's where like a lot of imposter syndrome comes in because... No matter how fucking miserable your job is. And I can say this because I worked in like retail in Bondi Junction for five years. Okay. I worked the fucking shittest job that I did not give a fuck about. And every day I was insecure about my performance. Who gives a shit? It wasn't even my career. It was literally something I was just doing to like have some money before I like left university and went into, job, into my actual job. This is like a retail job where I just like undo stock boxes and occasionally serve a Karen. Like, like so, so limited. Like the actual impact I had as a human being in this corporation was nothing and yet even then I was like oh I only I only did like 20 boxes today and I could have done 25 like who why do I care yeah and I think that's a really good question why do we care I think again some contradictions emerge Uh, so if that's true that statistic that 50% of people believe that their jobs are potentially bullshit and useless ideally that could mean that we only have to work half as much if only half the jobs half the labor Uh, is valuable, then we can just split up that labor equally and everyone can just work 20 hour weeks or or three or four days a week. Yeah. I mean, that is like, I think legitimately true as well for like anyone who's kind of really into anti-capitalism will know that we are like completely overproductive. Like we create way more productivity than is actually necessary at all for the world to function. In fact, we currently work more hours than peasants worked in medieval times. Did you know that? The 40-hour work week didn't exist back then. You got like three days off. (laughs) So, yeah, we are overly productive at a time where we don't need to be. It is a product of dystopian capitalism because in an ideal world, the better society became, the more leisure time we would have. Like the whole point to work hard and have a good future is that your kids can have fun, right? That's the point. But like, 
capitalism, don't be like that. Yeah, in like feudalist times, people who are working on a farm or, or managing crops, there would be some months of the year where they're working, you know, seven days a week. But then the rest of the time, they were working fairly infrequently, just a casual upkeep. And that's where the contradiction emerges. A lot of us know that we don't need to work 40 hours a week. But still, the same people will see people that don't have full-time jobs as lazy, as not really contributing anything to the world, even though that if they did get a job, most likely they would still not be contributing anything to the world. They would just be contributing to the economy. Ooh, good point there. So I think this begins to reveal the strange reality of things. Like, are we working too much? If we are, then why do we define ourselves by our productivity? And it makes me think of something that just happened to me the other day. I was talking to a friend that I haven't seen in a very long time. And since I last saw her, she's probably become more of a capitalist and I've become more of a radical uh, leftist. And ultimately, the conversation for a very long time came to the issue of, of capitalism. And we both acknowledge there are issues in the world, but how do we solve them? And then ultimately, I ended up talking about uh, digital technology and how much it, it, it makes us work nowadays. It really relates to what we were talking about last episode with how smartphones means that the workplace isn't the only place you do labor now labor follows you everywhere yeah, like we are so connected all the time that we cannot escape work you always have to answer emails your your workplace probably has a group chat that you're expected to uh, engage with even at home and when i got to the end of that point about digital technology and, and how work is subsuming every aspect of life i sort of revealed a position that i wasn't entirely certain that i had uh so when i was criticizing the ways that employers nowadays are making employees more productive the schism between her and I sort of materialized. She said something to the effect of, well, is increasing productivity a bad thing? Like, do you want people to be less productive? And I can understand to many people that would seem like a bad thing. And of course, to her, like, this would be a bad thing because she believes that social entrepreneurship and starting NGOs will actually be what solves our problems. Just being more productive, creating more things, creating more charities. That's what will actually create the change we need to see in the world. And this is where our differences were clear. I first came with a sort of Marxist perspective to sort of to challenge what she was saying, that if profits are made by stealing the surplus value of workers you exploit, then yes, we are working too much. We are too productive because we don't get paid for the labor that we do. If a worker gets paid, for example, $20 for creating $100 worth of value, then either the worker should have access to the full value created or should work less and create $20 worth of value because that's what they're paid. But secondly, it revealed a more totalizing difference in worldview. What if we are actually just working too much, producing too much, attaching too much of our identity to the undemocratic bounds of the workplace? It seems from here that imposter syndrome emerges from this work is always good attitude, that there's always more work to do and work is actually a morally good thing in and of itself. And since nothing is ever enough, you can always produce more or consume more. Imposter syndrome is what keeps you sort of malleable as a worker. It what keeps you docile and more readily exploited. Yeah, like capitalism has stakes in imposter syndrome because as long as you're insecure, you are working harder than you need to be. You're being more productive than you need to be. You're being more productive than you're paid to be and then you're required to be. And the only person really winning in that scenario is the corporation that is just going to make more and more profits of your labor, right? For you, like you might be finding some emotional solace that will end at the end of the day and then it will be a repeat tomorrow, like clockwork, the insecurity sets in. But it actually pays to keep you insecure. 
it pays to keep you worried about your position. It pays to keep you precarious. I mean, that's why like not even in the emotional or mental sense, but literally so many jobs are precarious because if you're insecure about not having your job tomorrow, you're going to work fucking hard tonight because there will always be somebody that works harder and you know it and you know it and you have to be the best. And it's actually impossible to be the best. Like it's an impossible cycle But because of imposter syndrome, because the fact that we feel so insecure about ourselves, we feel so much self-doubt, we don't realize the value that a company has in us because there's a fucking lot of value in your work. Like people do not realize the amount of profits they are churning out for companies. If you weren't valuable, you wouldn't be hired. (laughs) If you didn't create an immense profit for your company, they wouldn't pay you. You do obviously create lots of profit. Like we all kind of know that theoretically but it's hard to feel that way especially when you kind of add on like toxic workplaces managers that make you feel like shit co-workers that are racist to you everybody that invalidates you constantly like when you've got all of those things on top of it all it's very easy to feel very small and the only way you feel that you can gain control of the situation and gain control of your own security is by working harder it's by like quote unquote earning your place and really all you're doing is just giving more unpaid labor and more of your productivity to a company that probably doesn't give a fuck. I find that the answer to imposter syndrome, in my opinion, it's not to like instill women and specifically women of color with like more confidence, which is what girl boss feminism will tell you. And it's what every fucking article you read about imposter syndrome will tell you is to just be confident, just have self-affirmations, you know, have a list of all your accomplishments to look at every day to remind yourself that you're competent. Because it's it's never going to be a that bad it definitely stems from insecurity but you're not insecure because you're actually incompetent you're insecure because white supremacy and capitalism have a stake in your insecurity because like once you're insecure you're more exploitable be it by your race or by your productivity be it by the white co-workers that want to keep women of color in a cage or by the company that wants to keep you constantly churning out profits that you're not really compensated for you know, like, especially with the confidence argument, it really annoys me because we as women of color, especially like me, like I have confidence. The problem is I'm told I have too much of it. I don't deserve to have confidence like that with the skin in my tone. <laughs> like that doesn't add up. Um, and then when we do have that confidence, our workplaces will slowly erode it, destroy it for the sake of maintaining, you know, racial hierarchies and profits at work. Imposter syndrome is quite deeply rooted in white supremacy and capitalism. Like everything, like this is how I end every single episode because it's just... It is what it is. It's not really until we abolish things like racism in the workplace, things like toxic girl boss hustle culture, feminism, things like capitalism that we're actually going to fix imposter syndrome because until we abolish all those things, there will be people in high places having stakes and having benefits in your anxiety and your insecurity. Cool. Thanks for listening. Uh, I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Rachel, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow your boy's Instagram oh at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. 
Why did you say you both? I just I just really felt it. In that moment. In that moment. Okay. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com. Please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you email us. Uh, and we also have a Facebook group. Feel free to join that, but please answer the questions if you join because I don't accept requests from people who don't answer the questions. Sorry, not it's sorry. It's true. <laughs> you act like I've rejected you from the group. <laughs> You're in the group. <laughs> please, this is my fifth application. <laughs> Just tell me what the right answers are. <laughs> and of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool, thanks. Bye. Bye.